there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of Time for Coffee. I am so glad you press play. If you've ever wondered what it's like to live and work in a country at war, then you're definitely going to want to keep listening because my next guest is a remarkable woman who grew up in India and has spent her life living in one war zone after another. But before I introduce her to you, I want to make sure that you've signed up for our weekly newsletter, The Java Junkies Journal, that comes out every Monday morning and gives you a sneak peek at the five episodes we're dropping all that week. To sign up, just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and it's right there on the homepage. And while you're there, you can check out all the interviews we've done to date with professionals in all kinds of different careers. You can actually search by profession on the homepage, or you can go to the podcast page and scroll away until you find one that interests you. Now, grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my next guest is Deep Mala Mala, the Iraq country director at the Global Humanitarian and Development Organization, Mercy Corps. Deep Mala is someone who continues to thrive in extremely challenging work environments by tapping into her endless love of learning and helping others because it gives her life purpose and meaning. By the way, this is one of the early episodes I recorded back in the spring, which is why I'm recording this introduction after the fact. And oh, by the way, we did this recording in my home, and the dog you're going to hear barking a few minutes in is Arwen, my family's Australian Labradoodle, who must have seen a squirrel or the mailman outside our home. So thanks so much for your understanding. It just lasts for a very short period of time. Hope you enjoy listening to Deep Mala Mala. What do I do in daily life? I have to keep a large team or medium-sized team, immensely motivated and believing in what our mission is to be able to deliver what we need to help serve the communities. I know this sounds a bit jargony, but in real life, it's working with people, generating the funds and the money, dealing with local authorities, dealing with regulations related to NGOs, dealing with finances, money and audits, Uh, Dealing with communities, sometimes we do not meet their expectations. Sometimes we meet their expectations either way. So it's a a very busy and complicated uh, job, I would say. There are very few weekends where you would feel that I have done nothing uh, and you can fully relax. But I would say immense satisfaction, immense satisfaction. So take us into an average day. Right now, you're you're living in northern Iraq in Erbil. How much of your time are you there? How much of your time do you travel to other parts of the country where Mercy Corps is working? I'm in Erbil, let's say fifty percent of the time, and then I spend a large chunk of my time in Baghdad, where from where we run a major operation in other areas, and then the remaining maybe other field sites in Iraq, or sometimes flight to DC. Sometimes I go home as well. (laughs) So my average day, I leave my home at 7.45. I'm in the office at 8. 
when I have my cup of tea in the morning at home, I try to clear the emails from last night. So my inbox is relatively friendly. Average in a day, probably I'll sign few tenders. I'll probably sign some purchase requests just to make sure that we have the supplies in time. I would be having some meetings with my somebody in my security team because definitely there would be two or three sites where there would have been an IET attack or an explosion or somewhere. So I have to make sure my team is all right. So there would be something related to security eyes every day, let's say. Something related to project management, which is to that level that it has to come to my attention. Some some project has done really well. Some project is stuck somewhere. Sometimes we have an interesting data. There would be maybe one one or more interactions with a peer agency, another country director. We exchange notes a lot with each other. I say in a hardship and conflict location, a CD's best friend is another CD. CD meaning country director. So that would happen. Maybe some meetings with embassies, visitors, um, because, you know, many times donors and embassies who are funding a lot of the humanitarian responses, they don't get out to the field because of security restrictions. So they rely on us NGOs for information. So that happens quite a bit. And in a day, I would say there would be few problems which I will have to resolve. Sometimes they are small, sometimes they are big, but they are definitely there. Something related to people always happens because uh, a lot of this work is driven by emotion and a lot comes into the office. People get worked up, people sometimes clash with each other because everybody believes in their work so much. So there, there are people issues are not uncommon. So how does one prepare to become a country director? What do you think the most important skills are? And I'm guessing some of them are things that you could learn in a book and others are more soft skills. Correct. Absolutely. Some of the most important things in my experience, which help you be a good country director. You can be a country director. You decide you want to be an average one or you want to be a good one. My advice, if you want to be a country director, might as well become the best possible, right? I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Openness to learn and listen. Because we all remember you are working with a team which is from multiple nationalities. And then most of your local staff, remember, they know the context and the problems more than you do. Openness to learn, listen to various views and at the same time have the ability to exercise authority in a positive way because decision-making is needed. Being tactical, being able to assess the situation is very important and especially if you want to work in fragile context, you have to be very calm because problems will come and if there are three gunshots and you cannot deal with it, don't go till you are ready to deal with it. How common are situations like that where you're working and as I mentioned, you were in South Sudan, in Juba prior to mm-hmm. moving to, to Erbil. How often were you in a situation where you could quite literally hear gunfire? Many times, many times, much more in South Sudan because South Sudan in the last two years has been the most dangerous place for aid workers in the whole world. In the last three years, last when I checked, more than 80 aid workers have been killed. So very, very common. I mean, I remember months when we didn't sleep without hearing a gunshot. It's very common. What has been your way of coping with that? Personally? Yes. Dealing with my stress? Um, Because the conditions are rough. 
electricity, water, roads and everything. So everybody has their own way. Like I have colleagues who listen to music and do whatnot. For me, I I take really good care of my body. And you mean by exercising? Yes. Massage? It's, yes. Uh, I think it does really help. And I do video calls with my mom. And I just feel that there's somebody who matters to me most in the world. And she's so proud of what I do. And then every time somebody says, we are so happy to be in Mercy Corps. And I, my day is made. I don't need any other motivation for that. Deepmala, talk a bit about the donor relations side of, of the job. Because whether you're a country director or whether you're a a program manager or chief of party, these are all functions of the job. Mm -hmm. And by donors, for those who may not be as familiar with international development, we're more often than not talking about governments, Mm -hmm. Western governments, but sometimes you have, you know, increasingly you have other non-traditional donors and then of course foundations. Sure. And sometimes private donors. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about what's involved, where you see the um, the biggest challenges in that? Mm-hmm. So donor relations are, as you rightly said, key to my job. That is something a successful country director has to really invest in. My approach has been work towards making the donor believe that this is the right person and this is the right organization and then talk about money. Because remember, donors are sick of NGO people going to them all the time looking for a check. So we have to appear and demonstrate to them that A, we know what the context is, what the needs are, and B, we have the capacity to deliver. And most importantly, your money is safe with us. Our compliance and checks and controls are very strong. Sometimes financial opportunities, meaning grants, they are solicited. A call will be released and you respond. There's another one which is unsolicited, like they are not inviting a call, but you develop a relationship with them and then you say, I have this idea, any chance you'll fund it. So unsolicited is something which is equally important and it's a lot dependent on the relationship which you are able to cultivate. Another very important thing, you know about a particular donor, the area you want to work in, it's not their priority at that moment. Don't leave that. Cultivate the relationship, still keep it warm. Who knows what will change tomorrow? So it's very important to keep various doors open. And anyway, donors, even if they don't give you money, they're talking that Mercy Corps is great. That helps us. And donors are friends with donors. And then it's sometimes it gets very personality based as well. Like you have a great relationship with this embassy, the first secretary changed and then everything changed. So you have to restart again. So just be prepared. Developing a relationship is a process and we'll have to do it over and over again. How difficult is it working in countries where you don't speak the local language? It is definitely a challenge. The bigger challenge which I feel, like for example, when I'm working in a country where everybody speaks English or I speak the local language, I feel so good that I can speak to everybody in my team. I can motivate them by speaking directly. And... In translation, it's not the same. However, one thing which I've learned with my experience in so many countries is that whatever level people are, respect, they are able to read. 
So if you respect them as individuals and their culture, they can read it really well. And you speak the local language and you do not respect them that much, they will know. Another thing which I have learned uh, working in different cultures is that somehow body language and expressions are same. So non-verbally, you can still communicate. And last thing, I'm not bad at languages and I just enjoy picking words. So like in Iraq, I speak Arabic and my Arabic is so bad, but I speak all the time and it is always taken as a positive sign, whether from local authorities or staff or community and they encourage you. And it's a great way to open uh, the conversation and start bonding. Good for you. And by the way, generally, um, you know, finding my way, going to the market or talking to people, general conversation, I think I can manage that. But having a meeting with the mayor, I cannot. But I will start up and do everything in Arabic. In my English, I'll throw Arabic words. Like rather than saying, isn't it? I would say, sa. So I keep throwing. And in the end, I'll say, my aim is to have the next meeting with you in Arabic. Do you think I can do it? Then they laugh. So, <laughs> so it's a tactic. It's a game. And it's a beautiful language. But it's the most difficult language. I don't think I'll ever be able to learn it fully. Let's flash back to when you were... In university, back in India. Yes. We were chatting before we started this interview and you mentioned that you had three subjects that you were majoring in, history, economics, and philosophy. Yes. I decided this combination. <laughs> what were you going to do with it? So in my country, you know, if you score very good marks, you should be an engineer or a doctor see so many Indian doctors and engineers everywhere. So I was academically a really bright one. So my family thought automatically that's my path. I wanted to learn newer things. I wanted to study logic. I did not even know what it is. So I thought this is where I enrolled. So that was the first rebellion to enroll. And what was I going to do it? I had thought that I will get a cool job. I did not know what job, but I thought I'll get a really good job with the government. Because my father's a bureaucrat, so I thought I'll re I'll go that way. And then there's the civil services entrance examination in India, which everybody aspires to. So I did not know too much about anthropology, but everybody said that that's a really good subject if you want to clear the civil services exams. So for master's degree, I decided to enroll into anthropology. My family was happy because they thought civil services exam, good. I was happy because I thought this is a cool subject. <laughs> and Andrea, believe me, our first assignment field, we were taken to a slum and we were given interviews and everything. We were learning. And I knew at that moment what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I thought this is the best thing, learning cultures, learning about people. This is it. So you knew then. And then. In your master's program that you would go into was it development? Yes. Is that what you were thinking? Yes. Or so, not necessarily? Because of my age and level of exposure and experience, I did not know that much, but I knew that I would do something with people. Mm -hmm. I will not sit in an office and, you know, the cool job which I aspired for when I was <laughs> younger, I knew I would do something with people. And then anthropology gave me that chance. So you went immediately from undergraduate into your graduate studies? Yes. Yes. And do you think that... Looking back, was that a good thing to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. And after I completed my master's in anthropology, I decided to uh, get a PhD. So my first job after I completed the PhD was an affiliated program by the World Bank. 
which was again on social impact assessment, because then I had little experience in that field. And so how did your career progress? Can you say that it was at an early stage? You said, you know, one day I want to be a country director. I want to be running the show. Mm -hmm. Or did it just kind of evolve? Mm -hmm. I, I personally, in my life, can say that there was very little forethought into my decision-making other than saying, because I had studied Mandarin Chinese undergraduate. So I- Really? Yes, I did. Why? Because I wanted to be a diplomat. How interesting. Not so dissimilar to you in that it would have been sort of career foreign service. So I thought, let me give myself or try to give myself an edge by speaking one of the more difficult languages. And then when I decided that I wanted to be a journalist, which was several years after I graduated, then it was, wouldn't it be nice if I could get to China Mm -hmm. as a journalist? But beyond that, (laughs) there was really no (laughs) planning or true deliberation that went into my own career. Hmm. What about you? So my first job was a research assistant. And because I had done a PhD, I just At that age, I thought research is something where I want to go. So while being a research assistant and then I was promoted after one year because I was so eager to do anything and everything. I even thought photocopying is so important. (laughs) So I got more exposure to these development programs and then I shifted towards program management, project management, because I thought that is where my majority interest lies. And then the flow is interesting because so I I got into project management, but I was still interested interested in the seriously technical aspects, technical program quality. But I think by the time I was 30-ish, slightly shy of completing 30, I became a regional manager, which was basically managing a medium-sized program across two states. And that is where my real manager heading uh, something bigger happened. And I just started enjoying it. And I thought, this is where I'm best because in my view, I thought I was a combination of uh, technical skills, technical knowledge, management experience. And then I think I'm good with people generally. So I thought, why not make the most of what I have? So what were the functions in Mm -hmm. those jobs? Mm -hmm. What was it that excited you? Just being able to make change happen and just having the capacity to motivate a team of people to actually make a change. And the other important thing is that when you become a project manager and then a country director, you are responsible for the finances. And we, because everybody doesn't study finance per se, so that's a steep learning curve because you really have to know those things, dealing with audits, dealing with your budgets, modifying and realigning your budgets. Of course, I would have a finance director and a finance team working with me, but... They have, they are trained accountants and uh, I'm not. So that's something which you have to learn really fast and audits are a big reality. And also, I mean, I engage a lot uh, or try to engage a lot in, um, in media for raising the humanitarian voice and the humanitarian portfolio of my country program and agency. And because I was busy studying the, uh, studying these other topics, I did not study media communications, journalism as such. However, if you become a country director, you have to be really good in external communications and internal and, uh, you know, professional advice and professional expertise is something 
which is really needed. So you learn it by reading. Our friends will give you good advice who are experts. So as a country director, I would say you have to be hungry to learn. You've alluded now a couple of times to the demands of the job. Mm-hmm. Give me a sense of how long your day is. You said you would have had mm-hmm. a cup of tea in the morning mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. gone through your, mm-hmm. cleared out your inbox. Mm-hmm. What time are you unplugging? from email, from Mm. everything else, and getting a little downtime. Right. So I, many years ago, I started working around this thing called time management. But (laughs) because I had read some really good articles around it, and I thought it is a real thing. But now, if you ask me my view, I don't think we can manage time. Let's not even bother about it. And why should we manage time? It is a finite resource. You should manage your energy. So that's what I focus on because there are days when in half a day I can get so much done and there are days when in half a day I cannot even do half of what I am supposed to do. So I, my entire focus is on managing my energy and um, people have different work schedules but the way I, I do it that I have an open door system in the office because a lot of people need my signature approval, this, that or the other. And the type of context I am in, I really don't think that I can have the system of, okay, I sign only between 3 and 4 p.m. I think it is so unreal. And think of that procurement officer who wants a purchase request. For him, this is his achievement for today. And I'm delaying it. So because of the open door system, it's very helpful, but my day in the office, I would say, usually goes in meeting people and talking to people, internal and external. So I usually prefer to break the day. Like my aim is to five, five o'clock, four, between 4.30 and 5.30, close it, go to the gym because it breaks my day then and then come home, eat something and then... I spend a couple of hours in the evening between two-ish hours, let's say, maybe one call with Portland or DC colleagues because of the time zone. Yes. Sometimes, it's not every day, but sometimes there would be moments where I'm working till very late, but I never sleep right after shutting down my computer. I take time to unwind myself. Even if for that I have to keep awake for another half an hour or one hour, it is definitely worth it because otherwise... You just think, oh my God, I slept working and then I've woken up and I'm working again and it'll exhaust you. And my job is not to keep only myself motivated, but many other people. And you know, there are moments where where I'm like thinking about work or work environment or anything, things which are not positive and I'm sleeping. And then I make a very conscious effort and I say, why are you thinking about this at this point? Things like this will come and go. So what I'm trying to say is, I said it before, a real conscious effort to prevent negative thoughts to seep into you. It does help. And you know... That's hard to do. It is hard to do, but with practice, uh, we will we will never be 100% okay, I think. But with practice, we will be able to do this. So is this something that you've learned through a course or a book my experience, or just experience? My okay. experience in life because I... Sometimes I realize now I think like maybe seven years ago, I kept thinking about an office issue till 2 a.m. and it wasn't even important. Um, So I remind myself of all these things and then I make a conscious effort to remind myself of the good things which I hear from community members and my staff members. What do you wish you had known when you were a university student? 
something that you know now or that you've gained through experience that you wish that you could have told your young self? In university, we study subject-wise, like today this subject, tomorrow that subject, right? I wish somebody had told you, life will not judge me subject-wise. Many things, sometimes all the things will come together. I felt my university education really improved my intellect and my capacity in terms of knowledge about issues. It did not teach me enough about dealing with life and people. And I know that you cannot study that in the university, but I wish somebody would have told me life would be different than classes and examinations. So would you perhaps not have worried as much about your grades? To be honest, in my family environment, I don't think that was an option. <laughs> that wasn't. I think I'm, pretty, I'm very competitive by nature. So it's beyond grades, actually. I wish that in university when they taught us all these wonderful things, in, at university or somebody in my family or somebody should have, it would have been nicer if they told me that success here doesn't automatically mean success in your job. Yeah, that's it. Success in university doesn't automatically mean success in your job. So for the young people who are at the very beginning of mm -hmm. their lives mm -hmm. and their careers, what can you share with them? that will help make these early months and years of mm -hmm. their own career development go a little bit more easily or perhaps as well mm -hmm. as your career has? One thing which I would say most importantly is just be open to listen different perspectives and just open to learn. Second thing is it is okay to fail. And please fail at least once or twice because otherwise how will you, you will never be able to understand the pain which it brings and the drive, now I have to make it work the next time. It is okay to fail definitely. And I would also say that things will evolve and change in the external environment much faster than what they are imagining. Like let's say in the international development world, the policies of the donors, international politics, uh, the local context, security situation, it will change much faster. So just having a high level of flexibility and adaptability will help. Can you share with us a time when you failed and how you recovered? So I let me share one of the examples, which is a mistake. And I will never forget that. I used to work in Yemen. I was a deputy country director and we were producing a module for nursing staff and then huge piles came and they were kept in my office and then I asked okay why are we not delivering them on site and they said oh the front cover has a spelling mistake I was like what because we spent like $35,000 and fundraising is hard I said what the front cover has a spelling mistake and the word there was one word which was wrongly spelled and I said who approved this so I got vague answers. And then I went to my country director. We had a really good working relationship. I said, who, who has approved this? Because I really worked very hard. He really valued me and he knew that I'll feel very bad. But he said, Dipmala, it has your approval. And then I went back to procurement and it is signed. I have not only signed, I have written final approval for printing. 
my name and my date and i thought how can i do this i mean i have delayed the nursing trainings because the reprinting will take at least another week i have wasted 35000 dollars of the organization and it's so bad and then i said i have to pay back this money but i didn't have 35000 dollars obviously so my country director said you're taking it too hard on you deepmala i mean we'll we are only changing the front cover and the cost of changing the front cover was something like $6000 so it's not that much but then i did share half of my next month's salary and i don't think anybody should go to that extreme but i was much younger than what i am today i took it very very seriously and i just i don't know i took it very seriously but then i framed that approval it's with me even till now in a frame just as a reminder it reminds me that never think you are a superstar <laughs> it stayed with me andrea and while talking to you in my mind i have a graphic memory of me in that beautiful office in yemen with chandeliers where i was saying who approved this who nobody replied because they didn't want to to upset me because they knew that i would be i mean it's hard to tell somebody like you dude you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> did it undermine your self confidence no good no no i but i did feel very strongly that i have to do it right but the level of trust and assurance and the sort of response which my country director i was the deputy gave me at that time really made me feel really good he didn't make me feel bad at all he really said that anybody can do this it's all right deepmal i said no my name is on the authority matrix so i learned management lessons as well that one top tip for being a good country director that somebody who's working very hard and is motivated if they make a mistake have their back like i remember we had a dfid budget submitted when i was a country director in south sudan and um, if it is the british yes aid agency yes that's right thank you so we had an approved budget approved project and everything and then my director programs told me that deepmala in the approved budget you know because he put that approved budget together i he sorry he drafted the final budget i had approved it but the nitty gritty i won't check i won't know so he said there's a massive mistake in the budget and i was like it's okay we'll deal with it he said i'm talking about maybe a possible mistake of 1 million dollars so he was very very upset obviously i smiled and said francisco we'll deal with it don't worry we'll manage and he was like are you sure i said yeah we'll manage you do not worry at all leave it to me and then in the end there was no mistake in the budget actually Look but he felt but later he told me that it really meant how i responded to that crisis probably the way i was treated before yes something which i want to tell the young people this is something which i tell my team in the most difficult times so i do want to share it with our listeners there will be moments where you will be very frustrated you would be hugely tired maybe you have walked 4 miles or something maybe your internet is not working you didn't get water to shower all these things may have happened and these will happen again but the family who you served today or yesterday they will remember your face possibly your name for their entire life and when after few years they will tell the story you will be a part of that story how amazing is that thanks so much for listening to time for coffee where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24/7 no matter where you live I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.